Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Welcome to Life and Art from FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and this is our Friday chat show. Today we are talking about the film Napoleon. That's Ridley Scott's $200 million, two-and-a-half-hour epic, which is in theaters now. In it, Joaquin Phoenix plays the notorious French emperor, and the film follows his rise and fall. Today we will talk about the film and the myth of Napoleon with two very special guests. First, we have the esteemed author and historian Sir Simon Shama. You may know him as the host of a number of BBC series, including A History of Britain. He's also the author of many books on European and American history. In the words of the film, he's not built like other men. (laughs) Simon, welcome to the show. Hello. And joining us in London is our deputy arts editor and resident film expert, the great Raph Abraham. He found the crown in the gutter and the people put it on his head. Hi, Raph. Welcome. Hi, Lila. Such a pleasure to have you both here. So before we get into the history, I would love to just get your top line thoughts about the film. Um, In this version of the story, we watch Napoleon lead a number of famous battles. We spend time in his pretty kinky relationship with his wife, Josephine, played by Vanessa Kirby. Uh, Did you like it? Did you hate it? Uh, Simon, why don't we start with you? Um, Could have been worse. Um, (laughs) (laughs) May not sound like a, you know, massively ringing endorsement. Um, You know, I'm not one of those historians who goes to history movies in order to spot um, the the mistakes in chronology or costume or whatever, really. It is, after all, a movie. Yeah. The issue, I think, actually, is is whether they get the atmospherics right, whether if it's about a hero like Napoleon to get the psychology right. And um, I I think, actually, that all of the things that are... um, you know, necessary conditions of being put in the past. Much of it was there. I think what was absolutely missing um, was was a sort of sense, actually, of the part of Napoleon that wasn't just about winning battles mm. um, and about making kind of, you know, hasty lunchtime love to Josephine, really. <laughs> right. It was very weirdly robotic form of of lovemaking for someone, <laughs> you know, who wrote hundreds and hundreds of ecstatically romantic, passionate letters to her. It wasn't romantic so, sex. No, not at all. No, it was sort of, it reminded me a bit of Fellini's Casanova, you know, where, um, where it literally is like a kind of um, copulating automaton, really. <laughs> yeah. And um, that wasn't really Napoleon's thing. Mm. Raph, what about you? What did you think? Yeah, well, I, I mostly enjoyed it. Um, I mean, if Simon didn't go to spot historical inaccuracies, I certainly didn't. Let's let's get that straight <laughs> right from the start. I, there, there were some, Raph, there were some. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, even yeah. I might have spotted one or two, yeah. but I mean, the fact is I 
You know, I was actually expecting a sort of much more straight telling of historical fact in many ways, but I enjoyed its kind of irreverent approach to, you know, certainly the personal side of of Napoleon's life and Josephine. But I think, you know, clearly the film is trying to do both things, right? So it's trying to show the great battles, but then it's also trying to show this kind of slightly strange, kinky, um, you know, private life. So it was the kind of the marriage of those two things that didn't always work for me. Sometimes there were these sort of really abrupt tonal shifts when we went from one to the other. I'm not sure I came away with a complete understanding of Napoleon. If you haven't read umpteen biographies, I don't know if you come away from this really understanding the man or just being, you know, quite puzzled, really. Yeah, I agree. I enjoyed it more than... I expected, (laughs) but I did leave wondering whether I was asking myself the right questions about Napoleon as somebody who hasn't read all the biographies. Um, Before we continue on, I don't want to assume that all our listeners know a ton about Napoleon. And so, Simon, may I ask you to do the generous work of just placing him for us? Like for the people listening who haven't thought about him since high school history, who, you know, they know he was short, but salty about it. <laughs> he actually wasn't short. Uh, he wasn't short. Okay, great. <laughs> what do we need to know about him? He was absolutely the average height. He was probably around five foot six or something like that. The, the notion that he was short comes from a misreading of the scale of French measurements and also from him being called le petit caporal. But they didn't, when they called him the little corporal, they didn't mean to, that he was stunted in growth at all. It just meant he was a kind of good bloke, which he often wasn't. Right. I, I just want to say I will do your, you know, I will do your thumbnail biopic. <laughs> uh, but I, I do have to say the script I thought was mostly shit, actually. Oh, really? I okay, thought the I production, the direction that. was great. And mm-hmm. I just thought, you know, in terms of what really always surprises me um, mm-hmm. is when um, a director, particularly one as really gifted as Ridley Scott, he gets the kind of costumed physical mm. body language all of that is really brilliantly done so i say what what always surprises me about history movies that really don't quite succeed is that they miss out things that actually happen which are much more sensationally dramatic than the ones they use for example right at the beginning of the film we see marie antoinette being guillotine that's a, a napoleon wasn't there he is in the film but that that doesn't matter at all and she has a kind of silver-haired perm gone bad. She has the famous kind of distressed hair, where we know for a fact, which is really much more much more dr- gripping and poignant, that she'd had to have her head shaved in order that the guillotine blade... Yeah, there's a wonderful famous cartoon by Jacques-Louis David of her riding with her hands tied behind her with her shaved hair with a little bonnet on top. And that actually threw the crowds into total silence. Everybody there who either loved or hated her recognized that there was this extraordinary moment of dignity. So there, you know, you have an incredibly counterintuitive dramatic moment handed to a director on the play or a screenwriter who fails to take it. So it wasn't the historian in me that minded that. It was the dramatist in me that minded that. Right. You know, it's funny, Simon. I was, you know, when I left the film, I felt like I got to know this man's sort of sex drive and I got to know him as a battle leader. Uh, But I craved some sort of like 
bigger picture to ground me somehow. Like, it it felt a little inconsistent to me. Like, we're in a big battle, and then we're in a little bedroom scene with Josephine, and then we're in a big battle, and then a little scene. And I kept thinking, like, wait, where are we? Who is that again? What is he trying to do? He's trying to conquer Europe. Okay, wait, we're in Egypt. Is he trying to conquer the world? And then like, oh, wait, oh, we're in exile. I wonder what that's like. Oh, wait, he's out of exile. You can just do that? And I sort of left a little like, whoa. (laughs) No, you're you're so right. You know, there was an opportunity to say something really about the dangers of charismatic military leadership. Mm -hmm. and um, And that just didn't interest them. It would not get in the way of a gripping drama. And I will now announce the <laughs> film, which I think one of the few films that gets it absolutely right. And that was Steven Spielberg's Lincoln, mm. um, which is an amazing thing to watch. It had a staggering performance from Daniel Day-Lewis. Uh, and it asked very profound questions. And if you remember it, I don't know if you've yeah. both seen it, the way it worked was to take one brief period in Lincoln's career, namely the, the deals he has to do, in order, some of them very dirty, mm-hmm. in order to pass the Emancipation Proclamation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, 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 if you remember, there were exactly kind of 45 seconds of civil war or a minute of civil war right at the beginning. Right. The entire action then comes in a dark and smoky room. Right. So you have to really know what you're doing as a dramatist, I think. Mm. Um, and and really, Scott really had no idea what he was doing, in my view. <laughs> well, you know? I imagine um, like Napoleon, Ridley Scott just couldn't help himself. I'm sure he really wanted to do those big battles. That's the thing. I think part of the problem of the film is the fact that it's sort of trying to be these two things, right? So as I was saying, it's it's this, you know, very irreverent sort of picture of his private life. But at the same time, you know, it doesn't just focus on that. So I think a lot of the best biopics uh, and a recent one that I thought was terrific was Maestro, the film about uh, Leonard mm. Bernstein, right? Mm. But that takes a very particular focus and decides we're going to make this primarily about his marriage and his family relationships, you know, his children, his wife, and we're actually going to leave out a lot of the music, which you sort of think, how are you going to make a film about Leonard Bernstein and, you know, not make more of the music? <laughs> well, because right. I think you've got to make some tough choices. And the the, the tighter the focus often, you know, the richer the understanding of the person. The biopic I really thought was terrific was Jackie, Jackie Kennedy, yeah. Onassis, which again takes a very, very short period of, you know, sort of a week or something, you know, after the Kennedy assassination. And so you get this very richly detailed picture. Whereas I think mm-hmm. in Napoleon, it, it's not quite doing the cradle to the grave type, you know, movie, yeah. but it's right. still... But nearly. But nearly. But nearly. It's, it's trying to cover <laughs> decades, right? Too much. I have to admit that by the by Waterloo, the last... Um, uh, the last battle scene, I fell asleep. <laughs> oh my for God. A little while. <laughs> the cannons woke you up. <laughs> the cannon woke me up. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. I was kind of, it was a long, it was a journey. <laughs> Let's not forget Ridley Scott is the son of a military man. He's clearly mm-hmm. fascinated with all the machinations mm. of military life and, and portraying all of that. And, and he's a brilliant director of set pieces. Mm-hmm. I do think the battle scenes are very strong. You know, I found those very you know, visually exciting and gripping and all the rest of it. But actually, when we're talking about what it leaves out... Yeah, what does it leave out? Well, you may be delighted or you may be horrified to hear there's a much longer cut of this film coming. (laughs) In typical Ridley Scott fashion, he does not like Uh, to walk away from a film, you know, once he's done it. Apparently, there is a four-hour cut 
so an hour and a half longer than this, which mm -hmm. will appear on Apple TV when it goes to streaming. Yeah, I, I'm sort of resolved not to see it, but I probably end up will just out of curiosity. Well, yeah. But he does have a, he does have a history of sort of actually making quite good director's cuts. So the Blade Runner uh, director's mm. cut is is much better than the original theatrical version for me. Yeah, yeah. I want to run this by you. I'm curious how you both think of it. You know, I've been thinking about what questions a good film about Napoleon would leave us asking. When I left the theater, I, the questions that I was asking were like one. Why didn't that man quit while he was ahead? <laughs> Which is <laughs> probably a fair enough question about him. Uh, two, you know, how much does a human life count and on what scale? You know, he sacrificed so many lives. And uh, I was wondering about destiny and how dumb it seems and all the ways that he punished himself and others around him under the guise of this idea of destiny. Um, and I thought about Josephine a lot. And I wondered, though, whether, like, are there more questions I should have been leaving with? Are there like chewier or better questions that about power or about leadership or about the people? Like maybe I didn't need to go to a film about Napoleon to ask myself questions about love. <laughs> right. But I don't know. Well, I, I, I think my ideal director would be someone who starts off from a position of bitter hostility to Napoleon mm, and then acknowledges his extraordinary talent. But inevitably, because all the directors who tackle it and those who, you know, don't realise the ambition, like Stanley Kubrick, identify with Napoleon. Mm. And um, <laughs> as Raph mentions, um, Ridley Scott's, you know, family background, mm -hmm. you know, you start out really with starry eyes right. and the correction for being too starry eyed is a kind of slight, I, I found all the humor incredibly lame. Mm -hmm. You're never scared of Napoleon. Absolutely missing from the film was him shutting down the newspaper press, for example, which had been a great blossoming phenomenon of the revolution and sort of emasculating freedom of expression. Censors were everywhere. I've known somebody not unlike Napoleon, and I'm not going to say who it is. But if you change you your mind, when you're in, no, I'm not going to tell anybody who it is. He's not alive actually okay, now, okay. but he's not a general. But when I when I was in his presence, I found myself desperately wishing him to like me. Mm. And when I left the presence, I needed to take a long, cool shower and felt kind of disgusted with myself mm. for wanting to kind of crave his admiration. This reminded me of so many people who came into Napoleon's presence mm -hmm. who just could not help themselves, but, you know, sort of abandon any sense of their own self-respect. Right. Um, so he had that extraordinary kind of power. He had a phenomenal memory. He was an incredible manipulator. He was an extraordinary psychologist of human behavior. And he didn't give a toss about, I mean, human lives over and over again mm -hmm. were just pieces to move around the chessboard, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah, Simon, he really didn't seem scary. <laughs> yeah, he really He really, really wasn't yeah. scary. And, uh, yeah. and that I did feel like I was missing some critical piece of his character. Raph, I'm curious if you had thoughts about the humor. Um, Simon said he didn't like it. It didn't really land. Did you feel that way too? It was, yeah. Well, no, I mean, I, I have to say I did enjoy the humor clearly more than Simon. I mean, I thought 
um, you know, I thought there were some some moments that really reminded me of sort of the Monty Python films. <laughs> yeah. This yeah. kind of, you know, um, exaggerated version of the British, you know, heckling Napoleon. And uh, there are a few choice lines, you know, the the, the line about, um, oh, you you British think you're so clever because you have boats. boats. <laughs> you know, things like that. It's <laughs> just so weird. <laughs> well, I no, think weird yeah. is right. But I think weird is what they were going for. Because mm-hmm. I think you do not cast Joaquin Phoenix if you're going for scary Napoleon, right? I mean, okay, he's got a sort of sinister weirdness about him, but he's not... He's not a sort of frightening figure. No. He's not an intimidating. No, figure. you you want you want someone like Tom Hardy, I think. You know? yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah, he, he might have given it more of that sort of you know brawny attitude. But I also, at the same time, I am I'm going to con- contradict myself to some extent here. <laughs> I think um, you know part of what did keep me interested in the film was Joaquin Phoenix's performance and this kind of strange stoner take on Napoleon. You know and. A lot of your appreciation or enjoyment of this film will depend on how much you like or dislike Joaquin Phoenix because I don't think it's possible to watch this and not somehow have him as Joker uh, or Mm. in last year's um, Bo is Afraid, a film I didn't like at all. It's that version of Napoleon that you're going to get. And if you don't like the idea of that going in, I think really just don't even go near this film. Yeah. They did, in some ways, they seem to have done well at the pouty boy (laughs) version of him. Um, But is that the him we want? Mm. I would love to spend the last few minutes talking about where Napoleon fits into the current film landscape. Uh, Simon, you wrote in your piece that he ranks third behind Jesus and Hitler and number of books written about him, but he's first in depictions on film and TV. He's been depicted around a thousand times. Um, You know, it's risky to make a film like this. And, you know, we didn't think it was great or perfect, uh, but uh, it's doing really well. Um, it's doing better than anticipated. And I'm curious why you think it's doing so well right now. Well, I think I, I would love to know the proportion of men and women, actually, um, you know, responsible for the box office. Because I, I will acknowledge, and Raf said, the battle scenes are done very well. Um, you're dropped into them really uh, quite powerfully. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's, I suppose, you know, a come on for the whole kind of romance of warfare and glittering costumes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I guess that may be part of it. Yeah. Raph, what do you think? You know, do we still want historical epics in this image? I mean, I think actually, yes, it it, it does seem that the appetite for historical films is kind of on the rise again, because I think there was quite a a long fallow period, as, as Simon says, films like Lincoln didn't perform very well. But, you know, this year, this is the third big um, historical movie of the year. So, you know, obviously we had Oppenheimer, which was a monster success. It's made nearly a billion dollars at the box office. And it's a very talky interior film for the most part of, you know, men in rooms talking. Um, And then we had Killers of the Flower Moon, the Scorsese, Martin Scorsese film. They've both done pretty well. Um, I mean, I think, you know, the danger is that the budgets of these films, um, so both Killers of the Flower Moon and Napoleon are $200 million movies, um, budget-wise. So they have to make sort of $500, $600 million worldwide to actually start turning a profit. Um, Wow. So, you know, that's, that's a big ask for a historical movie. But look, I personally am kind of encouraged and heartened by the fact that films like this are being are still being made are being made again and are attracting mm-hmm. audiences because 
you know, quite frankly, I'm just sick of, you know, watching endless uh, superhero movies as much as I enjoy the occasional one. (laughs) But the fact is, films have been so dominated by these big franchises. So, you know, at least an original script, an original idea, even if it's, you know, story has been told umpteen times before, at least if, if there's a variety of what's on at the cinema and, you know, reaching big mainstream audiences, then, you know, that for me is, is kind of a, you know, a reason to be cheerful. Yeah, I, I will just I will just come off my grumpy old geezer <laughs> um, and I agree with Raph mm. that I do not want to begrudge the possibility of hooking people on history. Mm-hmm. Right. It's funny, I, I wondered cynically whether historical films have gotten big because it's another way of tapping into a franchise. Like they know that people care about Napoleon, so they know that if they'd make a movie about it, uh, it will do well. Uh but on the other hand, it's not because it's history. And I, mean, I think that it's, I, I feel heartened by it, too, because um, I like spending my time that way. I like going down a Google rabbit hole after a film, uh, learning more about Josephine. Um, Simon and Raph, this was such a delight. Thank you both so much. We will be back in just a minute for more or less. Welcome back to Life and Art. This is More or Less, the part of our show where we talk about something we want more of or less of culturally. Raph, let's start with you. What do you have? So the thing I want less of is um, is these endless people sharing their Spotify wrapped lists data for the year. <laughs> I don't care how many times you listen to the Kylie Minogue Padam song this year, you know, stuff like that. It's just reducing to music to these meaningless numbers. I just, oh, I found it incredibly irritating and it's enough. So that, that's my sour <laughs> note. Um, the thing I want more of, it turns out, is Beatles songs. And ideally, more Beatles songs. Yeah, because I found I just found myself kind of sort of surprisingly caught up with the release of the what's called the last ever Beatles song. Um, But I found it incredibly moving, and it really sucked me into the whole Beatles story again. And I find myself reading a giant biography of the Beatles and wishing that more songs could be dug up and somehow magically turned into new music. And um, yeah, and I just, I've got, oh, wow. I was very touched by it and thought it was uh, a yeah. wonderful thing. You know, uh, we only need one more or less, but I wanted to hear both of them. They were both great. So thank oh, you. Oh, sorry. Uh, no, that was perfect. What about you, Simon? Oh, well, I, I'm less, I want less Vox pop because the, the, the Vox of the pop or the pop with the Vox is usually so stupid and uh, <laughs> and i particularly want less of people who say oh those politicians they're all the same no they are not they are so not the same when you say less vox pops what do you mean um vox pop i mean people being stopped on the street to ask their opinion about politics and politicians really because inevitably the kind of maximum opinionated on less than the minimum of actual informational knowledge. And they all say, those politicians are all the same. No, they are really profoundly not. And the fate of nations, including our own, depends on you realising they're not all the same. Mm. He he continued to yell. (laughs) Um, What I want more of, Uh because I have four grandchildren, all really wonderful, I want more brilliant cartoons Mm. of the calibre of my absolute screen hero, Bugs Bunny. <laughs> so I want oh, wow. I want the heir to Bugs Bunny. Anyone out there who can 
you know, to, to be, or even Roger Rabbit, you know, rabbiting on. Yeah, that's what I want. Good. More of. So fewer loose opinions, strongly held, more cartoons of a high caliber. I want more adults drawing. Um, I've never really been someone who draws, but I started drawing at museums without thinking about whether it's good or bad. And it really helps me see the art better. And I specifically like trying to draw Matisse because he has like these strong lines and satisfying colors and he can like make a woman's face in like three swoops and it looks somehow very sexy. And I don't know how he does it. (laughs) And so uh, more adults drawing in museums. Cool. I'm looking forward to seeing the yeah, the fruits of your, your You don't labor. need to see it. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> Maybe I won't share. Uh, Simon and Raf, thank you so much for being on the show. This was such a delight. Thank you so Pleasure. much. Thank you for having me. That's the show. Thank you for listening to Life and Art from FT Weekend. A quick announcement, we are still collecting your predictions for our upcoming episode where we talk through what our cultural predictions are for 2024. This is an annual episode and we love it. Here's the question. What do you think will happen or what do you want to happen culturally next year? If you have an answer to that, email me at lilarap at ft.com or write me on Instagram at lilarap. Those ways to get in touch are also in the show notes. You will also find in the show notes great links on the topic of Napoleon, including an excellent essay that Simon recently wrote about why artists are addicted to the myth of Napoleon. All the links in the show notes that take you to ft.com will take you past the paywall. And you'll also find in there a discount code for a subscription to the Financial Times. It is one of the best discounts out there, and it's a great gift for the holidays. I am Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my talented team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko with original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer and our global head of audio is Cheryl Brumley. Have a lovely weekend and we'll find each other again on Monday. <laughs>